eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Today on Something You Should Know, the power of giving and receiving a great compliment. Then, why is it Americans seem to love knickknacks, gadgets, souvenirs, and all kinds of cheap crap? Certainly the market in the United States has been the most enthusiastic. We are key purchasers of crap, and we have been over time since the 19th century. I would say that we do crap better than any other culture. Then, some days are more dangerous to drive your car than others, and one is coming up. And artificial intelligence, AI, it will take over a lot of jobs, which makes you wonder, what kinds of jobs are maybe not entirely safe, but more safe? I went and asked some of the best AI researchers in the world, and I was sort of shocked by what they told me. They said there are three kinds of jobs that are are relatively safe. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story. Because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And fast is good, but quality also matters. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. So why leave hiring up to your every-so-often, once-in-a-while, try-to-do-the-best-you-can approach to hiring when Indeed gives you a proven system that works? And so many potential candidates, you're bound to find the right person. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. I want to start today by talking about the importance of compliments, because it turns out that flattery really can get you somewhere. The art of the compliment is a powerful social skill, and it can generate some significant positive energy if you do it correctly. According to Psychology Today magazine, you don't need to be an expert on this. You just need to be genuine. The more specific the compliment is, the better. For example, it would be better to say, the way you handled that question at the meeting was brilliant, rather than say, hey, nice job in there. 
Compliments on appearance are fine. They can make people feel good and put them at ease. If you're the recipient of a compliment, try not to take it for granted. Women in particular often discount a compliment by downplaying it or denying it. That just sucks the energy away from someone else's good intention. Take advantage of that positive moment. Smile and say thank you and accept the compliment for both your sakes. And that is something you should know. I bet that if I went into your home and looked around, I would find drawers, boxes, closet shelves full of crap. Knickknacks, gadgets, toys, souvenirs from trips. A lot of cheap stuff that you've purchased over the years. And I'm not being judgmental here, because if you came to my house, you would find the same stuff. Well, different stuff, but, you know, same crap. Why? Why do we buy this cheap stuff? Why do we keep it? And why don't we ever learn that buying and keeping this cheap stuff is a total waste of money and space? Well, that is a fascinating topic, and one that my guest has researched thoroughly. Wendy Wallison is an associate professor of history at Rutgers University, Camden, and author of the book, Crap, A History of Cheap Stuff in America. Hi, Wendy. Glad you could be here. Hi, thanks for having me. So what makes crap crap? What's your definition of it? To me, crap consists of goods that are cheaply made, made not to last, made of inferior products, and are what I call cynically produced. Uh, They often promise more things than they actually deliver and end up disappointing people in the end. So what might be crappy to me isn't necessarily crappy to you. You know, my sense is that we're much more we're much more forgiving of ourselves and the crap that we buy compared to like your neighbor buys something and you're like, oh my God, why would he ever buy that crap? But you've got crap that he's probably saying the same thing about. In my research I came across people in the nineteenth century complaining about other people's consuming decisions and the fact that other people didn't know how to spend their money, but they themselves uh, were very good judges of, of how to spend their money. And I think uh, that's true today, too. We can, we can justify our own frivolous purchases uh, much more easily than, to use your word, than we can forgive other people's dubious purchases. And some things, a lot of crappy things are kind of inexplicable. It's really hard to figure out why they were produced, what they're for, um, why they even need to exist. Beer koozies with boobs on them, plastic vomit. Like, why do we need this stuff? Well, clearly we don't, but we have it anyway. So, but why do we have it? Why do we have plastic vomit and crass beer koozies? Why? I'm not sure if I have ever been able to answer the the plastic vomit question. But th- those are like props for humor. And I think we, we feel sometimes like we, we need to have these humorous outlets and things like those objects are kind of easy to purchase and they're easy to understand and they're easy to deploy. It's not only cheaply produced, but it's cheap to purchase. So there's very little risk in purchasing these things, even if we only think we're going to use them once. It's easy for me to take a chance on this thing that might revolutionize my life in some way, and it might not, but if I only pay 
a few bucks for it, that's no big deal. So when you look back, when did crap start, if, if there's a starting point? In the United States, I think the first crappy things that I've seen would include costume jewelry, which starts to be produced in the late 18th century. Really? So costume jewelry is the beginning of crap, and, and then what happens? Very quickly, the cheap goods market expands. And a lot of that is because with the lifting of the embargo after the War of 1812, we were importing a lot of goods from Great Britain. And those goods were uh, shut up in um, British warehouses. And then there was this like pent up surplus. And so British goods were dumped onto American markets in the the late 18 teens, 1820s. And a lot of these things were manufactured as cheap goods, sort of shoddily made, produced goods. Um, And others were things like textiles that had sort of faded over time, um, books whose pages had gotten brittle, things that couldn't be sold in the British marketplace. So they brought them over here. And Americans loved this stuff. So stuff nobody wanted in Britain fed the desire in America for, for crap, which, which makes me wonder, is, is crap, is the collection, the purchase and collection and storage of crap an American thing primarily? You know, that's a really good question. And I, I get that a lot. And it's, it's a question I can't really answer fully. What I can say is that certainly the market in the United States has been the most enthusiastic, are key purchasers of crap, and we have been over time since the 19th century. And we devote more of our domestic space to our crap and our clutter. Even just if we think about um, in today's terms, we are the largest consumers of storage units. So I, I see it as we rent little apartments for our, our stuff, the stuff that we can't accommodate in our own households. I would say that we do crap better than any other culture. <laughs> we win the award. There is something about buying crap, particularly like when you go on a trip, like if you go to Hawaii, you want a souvenir of your trip. And one way to get a souvenir of your trip is to buy the keychain or the or the little hula dancer to hang on your mirror, or the coasters that say Waikiki on them. And they're really kind of lousy souvenirs, and, and you're probably going to end up throwing them out, but but you feel compelled to buy it. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's really kind of the basis of souvenir culture, isn't it? For the most part, we do buy these crappy little mementos of our trip, of this extraordinary time that we've had to bring back to our kind of normal everyday lives to, to, to remind us. Yeah, magnets, um, keychains, funky hats. Of course, ironically, usually not made in the place where you buy them. Most of the stuff is made in China, whether you buy it in Hawaii or at Niagara Falls. Um, <laughs> but that doesn't seem to matter so much as this um, token kind of being a memory object of um, our experience. One of the characteristics, it seems to me, of crap is 
it's always disappointing. Like, it never lives up to what you think it's going to be. The souvenir you bring back from your trip never really reminds you of your trip that much. And, and it's just so many of these things don't live up to the, the hope or the promise, right? I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of examples. A gadget, you know, will promise to make some task quicker, easier, more enjoyable, or a lot of gadgets promise to do like eight things in one. And the, but the reality is that the eighth thing in one gadget might do one thing okay, but probably doesn't do any of those things very well. And the gadget that promises to make our work more enjoyable and easier will often create more work. You know, if it's a, if it's a kitchen gadget, um, it might require like all this cleaning or it just might not work very well, or it just takes more time in some other way. So the promise, the gadget falls far, far short of what it promises. In the case of collectible objects, those are kind of crappy in a different way because they promise to be investment objects often, but the kinds of mass-produced collectibles that people like to purchase, collectible coins, figurines, uh, you know, Beanie Babies. In my book, I talk about the Beanie Baby bubble. People had had a promise um, that these things were going to appreciate in value. And some people even invested their retirement money in these collectibles. And in the end, um, there was no resale value for a lot of these things. So those things were crappy in a different kind of way. There are some some things that I think you would categorize as crap. Like, there's a picture of them in your book, of like the, the little porcelain dolls that you think of, you know, grandma has on her piano kind of thing. But they're not cheaply made, or many of them are not cheaply made. They last forever. They're, they don't fit the, the real description of your, your description of crap. And they mm-hmm. do exactly what they're supposed to do. They sit on the piano. That's it. That, so, you know, promise <laughs> yeah. delivered. Right. It probably sounds like I'm being really judgy. And by calling these things crap, of course, there's, there's a judgment in that word. But I'm really trying to understand these objects rather than, than being so judgmental about them. And as I said before, like what, what might be crappy to me might not be crappy to you. So um, something that to me is just kind of a worthless knickknack that I have to dust might be this really sentimental figurine to you. We're talking about crap today, the crap in your house and why it's still there. And I'm speaking with Wendy Wallison. She's author of the book, Crap, A History of Cheap Stuff in America. Hey, a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, I'm what you call a seasonal allergy sufferer. Stuffy nose, watery eyes. If you have seasonal allergies, you know what I'm talking about. I don't sleep as well because I'm all stuffed up. Food doesn't taste as good. Luckily, though, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Now, I know people with allergies who just you know, they just live with it. And, well, that's a strategy. But why, if there's relief, 
Why not try it? Claritin D is designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Everyone in my house who has allergies takes Claritin D. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Are you one of those people who just buys things with whatever credit card you grab out of your wallet? Well, that, that could be a costly move. NerdWallet, you've heard of NerdWallet. NerdWallet lets you compare credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. So if, for example, you like travel rewards, you can see which credit card gives you better rewards than the credit cards you've got now. Think of what you could do with better rewards. A free flight, room upgrades, who knows? Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and so much more at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. So, Wendy, when you talk to people about their crap, what do they say? What In the light of day of looking at these purchases that were clearly not the savviest purchases, how do people feel about their crap? What do they tell you? Um, that's, a, that's a great question. What I find is that people are often really bemused by their stuff. Like, they'll just admit, like, yeah, this thing is crappy. Yeah, I shouldn't have spent money on it. Or can you believe that I bought this thing? And, you know, sometimes people will make ironic purchases. They'll buy things specifically because they know they're crappy. I think because a lot of the things I'm talking about are so inexpensive, um, they become this very kind of throwaway thing. And so um, there's a frivolity to them that I think people are comfortable laughing about. So I don't, I don't encounter a lot of, of shame with people with crap. They mostly just laugh and admit that, yeah, they've got crappy stuff. I don't know if this is human nature or what, but every home, I think, in the United States has something like a junk drawer where we keep this stuff. It's like a tribute to your topic of crap. We keep broken things. We keep broken pens and pencils. We keep watches that don't work anymore. We keep them in our junk drawer, and, there, and there's this resistance to getting rid of them. That, that, and by putting them in the junk drawer, kind of that's where they belong, but they still don't work. They don't do anything, but we can't let them go. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. For some reason, I've been thinking a lot about junk drawers lately. And you're absolutely right. Like the, the objects in junk drawers live in a kind of purgatory um, because we put them in this thing that we call the junk drawer and they're just miscellanies, right? Rubber bands and thumbtacks and toothpicks and twist ties and pens that don't work, to your point. And yet we just can't throw them away. There's something about our needing to hold on to them. I don't know if it's because we think that maybe they'll have some use value 
at some point, you know, like, oh, as soon as I throw that twist tie away, I'm going to need it and then I'm going to regret it. But we often consign these things to a specific drawer. Um, and it's kind of a smaller version, I think, of how we think about storage units. You know, we can't get rid of that stuff either, but yet we don't want to live with it. We don't want it in our houses. So we consign it to like a big junk drawer, a storage unit instead. Well, it does seem, and I, I don't have any evidence to, to prove this, but it, it does seem that today more than yesterday, we have a lot more disposable junk. We live in a more of a disposable society, whereas in earlier days, people had like quality stuff. They had really good stuff that they held on to. We're no longer caretakers of the stuff that we have. And I think that that's a real, that marks a real difference in how we used to live in the past. Things were handed down. Um, people had fewer objects and they took better care of them. Clothes were refashioned, recut, restyled, sized down, handed down. Things could be repaired. Now, you know, everything is made of plastic or pressed wood, so you can't, you know, like an Ikea cabinet can't even be repaired. Um, so our relationship to our material world is much different, and it's a much more disposable world now that we're living in. It seems to me that one of the big drivers for all of this crap that we buy is that is the novelty of it. We see some new gadget that does things we've never seen before. Ooh, I've got to have that. I've never seen that before. And that's what drives the purchase of a lot of this, as, along with the advertising that puts it in front of our faces, because if we didn't know it existed, we wouldn't need it. Right. Novelty. Novelty plays a big role in this, and it has over over time as well. We we like new things, and we are we have very short attention spans as consumers. So, as I mentioned before, like a lot of our our attraction to cheap goods, I think, is because it allows us to just constantly have this churn of the new. We have a desire, we can satisfy it, and then we can move on to a new desire, which is then easily satisfied as well. And even if even if goods disappoint us, especially crappy goods, which are going to disappoint us, that's okay, because my loyalty really isn't to this object, which I can easily cast off. My desire becomes aimed at something new. And um, so I can always sort of look for something different, novel, and, you know, always be changing up kind of the, the objects around me. Talk about some of the most unusual, just subjectively that you discovered, some of the fun things that you found that people actually, actually buy or have bought. You know, there are things like the hydraulic potato peeler, um, which which had a moment in the 1950s where it it promised to peel potatoes instantly, and all you had to do was hook up this device to your your faucet and turn on the water. Um, and what it really did was it just sprayed this sort of macerated starch all over the the kitchen and created a mess. I'm actually really kind of interested in the infomercials that are on 
today, you know, extra laminated copper nonstick pans or the brownie pans in the shape that gives you like crust all around, the garden weasel, the lawnmower that like mows the lawn and collects the leaves and mulches and does all these things. I just think, I think even if ultimately they're, they're useless, they're really kind of wonderful at the same time. Is there, was there a golden age of crap or, you know, what's, what is the trend of crap? <laughs> if, if, if there is such a thing or just is crap is just crap and it comes and it goes. Since the 19th century, we've always had a lot of crappy stuff and we still have a lot of crappy stuff and we have stores dedicated to selling it like dollar stores, which are not new. They, um, they emerged in the 19th century as well. So I suppose you could say that crap now has become even bigger business with, with chains dedicated to selling cheap stuff. We have places like dollar stores and five below. We have Ikea that sure sells cheap furniture that allows people to furnish their apartments if they can't afford to buy higher quality furniture. But people who are old enough to remember can remember stores like Woolworths, you know, the five and dime, the... And, and these were stores on, you know, Main Street, USA. These were not dollar stores that were kind of like on the outskirts of town. These were, you know, Main Street stores that did very well. But clearly they sold a lot of crap. Yeah. So, so Woolworth had this sort of brilliant insight, which is that if you put a lot of low-priced goods together and seed what he called seeded the the lot with a few nicer objects, people are going to want to buy everything. Um, the, the cheap goods become as desirable as the more expensive goods because people kind of feel like they can find a treasure in there. And he um, had this like really, really brilliant insight and created entire stores that were filled with low-priced goods and a variety of goods. So you mix the variety, this sort of idea of miscellany, infinite novelty with low price, and it creates this thing in people's minds that they think they can find the secret treasure, the one like hidden thing of value in the store. And so that continues today in, in dollar stores. There's an interesting sort of consumer psychology there where, you know, you just sort of mix cheapness with variety um, and that, that sells. Um, it's sold in the 19th century and it still sells today. One of the things that's, that's interesting to me is that the way consumer psychology worked 100, 200 years ago is not that much different than how it still works today. Well, it's quite a story, and I, I just find it so strange that we're so attracted to crap, and even after a lifetime of crap, we still buy more crap. I've been speaking with Wendy Wallison. She's an associate professor of history at Rutgers University, Camden, and author of the book Crap, A History of Cheap Stuff in America. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. 
Thank you, Wendy. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Artificial intelligence has been in the news a lot. Lately, there have been warnings by some very prominent people that AI is dangerous, that we need to slow this down. But we've been hearing about AI for a long time, mostly in the sense that it's going to replace or is already replacing people in a lot of jobs and and in some jobs that previously seemed immune, jobs that you would think you would need a human being. From all the coverage it's getting, it appears to be a very important topic, and yet it's also a topic that's kind of difficult to get your head around. So let's attempt to get a better understanding of it with Kevin Roos. He is a technology columnist for the New York Times. He is host of the Rabbit Hole podcast, a regular guest on The Daily, and author of a book called Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. Hey, Kevin, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So we've all heard about AI for a while now, how it's creeping into our lives more and more. But why is it now such a big concern? Why are alarms going off about it? Well, I think there are a couple answers to that. One of which is AI is really exploding right now. We have what what some AI researchers are calling a golden decade of AI research and progress. Um, the last 10 years have just seen an incredible expansion of the kinds of things that AI is capable of doing. So we started off with AIs that, you know, could play chess um, and board games and, you know, and rank news feeds and Facebook algorithms. And just in the last a couple of years, we've had things like GPT-3, which is a a text uh, completion engine where you type in some words and GPT-3 will finish it for you. We've also seen AI that can uh, make art, these new sort of text to AI uh, or uh, text to image generators where you plug in a prompt and the AI draws it for you. And we've also seen much more direct forms of, of uh, labor replacement AI. So things like um, automatic coding programs where you type in, you know, build me a, a you know, a, a JavaScript application um, that does X, Y, and Z, and it will just do that for you without you having to learn any code. So AI really is progressing uh, quite quickly relative to historical norms. It's also... Re- Uh, threatening to replace a kind of worker that hasn't traditionally had much to fear from technology. So previous waves of automation, you know, factory automation during the Industrial Revolution, um, the robotics revolution of the 20th century, the PC revolution uh, of the late 20th century, these previous waves of technological change really targeted kind of 
working class workers, manufacturing workers, um, people working in auto plants, uh, things like that. But what's happening now is that AI actually uh, is, is really good at doing the kinds of repetitive cognitive labor that a lot of sort of middle class and, and a, you know, and, and white collar uh, workplaces have a lot of. So uh, there was a study a few years ago by the Brookings Institution in Stanford, where they, you know, basically analyzed which jobs are first in line to be automated. And what they found was it actually wasn't the blue collar sort of, you know, retail or manufacturing or trucking jobs. It was actually these kind of high paid technical jobs in fields like sales and insurance and, and even in the tech industry itself. So the, the kind of target of AI, uh, the kinds of jobs that it's capable of replacing has really expanded and is doing so quite quickly. And so it, sound, it sounds like the best jobs will be the jobs that take care of the machines that replace everybody else. <laughs> I mean, that's that's one kind of job that I think will be relatively safe, you know, if you build and maintain these AI models. But even those really aren't that safe, uh, because now we have things like uh, AutoML, which is a, a Google tool that is basically a, a neural network, a, a kind of AI model that builds and trains other AI models. So even the work of, of making the AI now increasingly is done by AI. So what kind of jobs are safe? Um, it would seem my job's pretty safe. Any job where, you know, the, the person, the personality, the, you know, a comedian, an actor, the, you kind of need real people, I think. Yes? <laughs> right. Well, I think there's some safety in what you and I do. But I don't think we should get too cocky uh, because, I, you know, I think the world is, you know, history is full of people who thought, well, my job is safe. Everyone else is uh, is up as a candidate for automation, but, but me, I'm safe. And we are seeing AI that's being used to make podcasts, to write newspaper articles. Um, it is capable of doing some of that stuff quite well. Um, but I, I think the question is a good one. So what kinds of jobs are, are maybe not entirely safe, but more safe. And that's what I went and when I was reporting this book, I went and asked some of the best AI researchers in the world. And I was sort of shocked by what they told me. They said, you know, basically, there are three kinds of jobs that are, are relatively safe. The first one is what I call surprising work. So that's work that isn't regular. It's not patterned, you, you know, it's it's not the same day to day. It's not repetitive in any way. Um, you know, these would be jobs like, for example, a kindergarten teacher. That's a quite hard job to automate, to give to an AI, because it's so chaotic. <laughs> and, and that's a job that's never the same from day to day or hour to hour. And so the more surprising your work is, uh, no matter what field you're in, the safer it is from being automated. AIs really like to do things that are repetitive, that you can do a million times and get a tiny bit better every time. The second category of, of safe work is what I call social work. And this is what I, what, what I mean by that is work that fulfills social needs rather than material needs. So if you are, you know, a nurse, if you are a hospice chaplain, if you are, uh, you know, a, someone who, uh, you know, has a podcast that people feel connected to and, and socially um, involved in that meets a social need for companionship and information, that's a much safer kind of job than jobs where you're making things. Instead, you're making people feel things. And that's something that we're going to want 
humans to do for the foreseeable future, I believe. And the third category is what I call scarce work, which is work that involves rare skills, rare combinations of skills, or as you said, just extreme, you know, talent. So this is why, you know, we still have, um, you know, Olympic swimming competitions and people, you know, millions of people watch them, even though we now have boats that go faster than even the fastest swimmers. We're not purely interested in watching things go fast. We're interested in watching humans go fast in the water. And so that's a kind of job that is, is relatively safe uh, from being replaced by AI. So those are the three categories, surprising, social, and scarce. What's interesting, there are, I imagine, machines, computers that can, for example, write music. But I don't think people want machine-written music. They want it coming from somebody's heart. They want it, they want it to be real people, just as there are movies now that are all computer-generated characters. But I don't, I don't think people want that so much, or at least not exclusively, that they want people need people. Well, yes and no. I mean, if you think about, let's just take music, your example. Um, you know, there's a lot of music that uh, that we really don't care or know anything about the humans behind it. So, you know, the music that's playing in the supermarket as you do your shopping, um, you know, the music that you're, you know, that you're listening to when you're studying or writing, the kind of like, you know, lo-fi beats type of music, um, you know, that music, we don't sort of consider that like classic, you know, artistic music. But there are a lot of musicians who make a living as studio musicians making those kind of backing tracks, making those that kind of sort of ambient music. And that is all going to get replaced. I mean, that's that's already uh, in many cases being replaced. You know, the music that plays when you play a video game, like that kind of thing can very easily be automated. So yes, will there be human artists going on tour, giving concerts, putting out albums? Uh, I think that's pretty safe to say, but that is actually a pretty small fraction of all of the music that we might listen to in a day. Yeah, but but for the music that matters, for the music people love, it just seems like you want that music to come from a person, from the heart of a human being. But that's just the the norm today, and I imagine you know people can adapt. If if music comes from a machine and you like it, you like it. Yeah, I think people will adapt. You know, we've seen people, you know, really enjoying some of these AI generated uh, art pieces, for example, that are coming out. And, you know, it's in, in many cases, it's revealing that there are a lot of human artists who aren't as, you know, who aren't as special and unique and irreplaceable as we thought. And I think a lot of what we would consider art I think art has the same sort of dynamics as music where, you know, yeah, you can point to your famous painters and your sculptors, but most art is not that. Most art is, you know, a picture of a sunset that's printed out and, you know, put up in a hotel room or it's a Thomas Kincaid or it's, you know, something that we might, you know, art connoisseurs might turn their noses up at, but that is actually like, you know, quite a large part of, of the art that people see on a daily basis. So I think we, we make a mistake if we assume that just because our jobs feel creative and, and human and artistic, that they're not also replaceable. So what's the optimistic part here? Because it sounds like from what you're saying that a lot of people will lose their jobs and a lot of the things that people do 
machines will be able to do, and nobody will really notice or care, and and that leaves a lot of people out. Well, I think the the optimistic part is that this is not um, written in stone. This is not automatic. Uh, this process is driven by people. So, you know, robots don't just replace us <laughs> because they decide one day, like, I'm going to go into a factory and start doing work. They replace us because, you know, managers, executives, people who run factories decide that that's what they want to do. So those people can make different choices. But it's also not that not true that automation is going to, and AI are going to wipe out entire job categories overnight. What will happen is that AI will actually be wonderful for the people in every field who are doing the kinds of deeply human work that robots can't do that surprising social and scarce work because those people will not only not lose their jobs but they're going to have all these new tools so if you are a designer who you know makes storyboards for pixar or another movie studio and you know your job to this point has involved lots of hand drawing and sketching and then all of a sudden this computer program comes along that can take text prompts and turn them into hyper-realistic images. Well, you could look at that one way as like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be replaced. But another way to look at it is, well, I'm a person who has so much more to add in value than just my drawing skills. So I'm going to take this thing and I'm going to do my job 10 times faster than I used to. And I'm going to be more creative and I'm going to be more ambitious. And it will really empower the people who are doing the human work inside these industries to be able to do that work much faster and more efficiently. But isn't it, there's also, it seems like a, a balancing act in the sense that you could replace a lot of people eventually and put them out of work, but then the, then the whole system fails. If, if people don't have money from working, they don't have money to buy the things the machines are making and everything falls apart. Right. And historically, if you look at what happens after big waves of technological change, um, it does result in some job loss, but it also creates many more jobs. So with the Industrial Revolution, for example, a lot of the, the people, you know, who were farmers, um, you know, and, and plowed land by hand or, you know, did the kind of uh, manual repetitive labor that the machines were, were now capable of doing, a lot of those people, you know, were forced to find other work. They moved to cities, they worked in factories. But because those factories could now make so many more textiles, so many more goods, um, the market for those things increased radically because prices came down. All of a sudden, people who might buy, you know, one shirt a year were buying 10 shirts a year. And so you had many more people employed in those factories. So the question, as always, is, you know, how long is the gap between the disappearance of the old jobs and the appearance of the new jobs? And are those jobs accessible to the same people? Can the people who are displaced from, say, you know, being studio musicians, can they get some of the new jobs? Are they eligible for and qualified for and have the skills for some of the new jobs that are going to be created in fields that we can't even really imagine yet? Well, how has that gone in the past? Are, has that always been the case that there's always... It seems like it the the thing kind of works itself out somehow. It has to. 
<laughs> well, it has in the past uh, worked itself out. The problem is that it, it really varies how long it takes and how difficult the transition is. So after the Industrial Revolution, there was about a 50-year period where corporate profits were growing, but workers' wages weren't. So all of these factory machines, all of these, you know, all of this new industrial equipment, it made a lot of money for the people who owned the factories. But most workers didn't see any fruits of that progress for 50 years. And that's, you know, in, in that time, that's a whole lifetime. Um, it's certainly a whole career. And so I, I don't think we want to wait 50 years this time. I think we want to put processes and systems and laws in place so that when we do have these job losses, um, we we can you know we we don't have to sort of wait for uh, the technology to catch up and create a bunch of new jobs. We can actually um, get people into those jobs right away, start preparing them, giving them the skills they need, so that they don't experience this this fifty year gap between uh, the the sort of value of their of their labor and the wages they're actually taking home. Which kind of jobs, besides the you know uh, manual labor tasks, but which kinds of jobs seem to be right in the crosshairs of AI? I, I actually think the kind of worker who has the most to fear from AI is the middle manager. Um, and there's some studies that have borne this out that actually the people... So if you look at some a place like Amazon, for example, in an Amazon warehouse. That's that's one of the most highly automated workplaces in America, and yet, you know, there there are tons of people doing the packing and the you know the taping up the boxes, the stuff that machines can't quite do yet. But what's not there is this whole notion of the foreman. Like in old factories, there used to be a guy called the foreman, and he would you know make sure that everyone was you know on their line at the right time, that they weren't, you know, dawdling, that they weren't taking breaks that were too long. You know, there were these people who were sort of the middle managers of the factory. And all of that has already been automated, right? Like now Amazon workers, they have apps and algorithms and wristbands that tell them when they're not meeting their packing targets that, you know, can automatically generate the paperwork to fire them if they, you know, if they're not performing well enough. So that whole layer has kind of been abstracted into technology. And so that's who I think has the most to fear in the near term. So knowing what you know and looking into the future, knowing that that's not always reliable, but, but you know more than most, what, what's the advice? I think the advice is to get to safe ground. So what I said before about these three categories of work, surprising, social, and scarce. So those are not fixed, right? Anyone in any job can be more surprising, social, and scarce than they currently are. Whether you're a factory worker or a podcast host or a sales director or a programmer, you can put more time and energy into improving the parts of your job that are uniquely human and being more human at those things um, and, and developing the kinds of skills that are going to be very hard to automate. And so I think that's, you know, if I'm worried about keeping my job, that's the first thing I'm doing. I'm saying, okay, well, if, a, if an AI can learn to write newspaper articles, then I better go on some podcasts. I better, I better make some TikTok videos. I better do some things that robots can't do because that's got to be there as a, as a sort of safety net for me. If I was worried about losing my job as a journalist to text writing AI, I would think, okay, what are the parts of that job that robots can't do? 
If you are a doctor, spend more time working on your bedside manner rather than, you know, reading scans uh, on a screen. That's going to, that part of the job is going to be much easier to replace than the part that involves talking to people, uh, you know, listening to them, um, giving them advice like that. That's the part of the job that is the least automatable. So I would, I would focus all of your time and attention to the degree that you can on making your job as human as possible. Um, and that's where I would start. I would, I would go through a list of, you know, what you do in a day, sort of an inventory. And I would say, you know, where should I be investing my time and energy into getting better? What are the things that can't be replaced? As this story develops, what would you say is, the most important thing to keep your keep your eye on the ball. What what is the ball? I go back to these three categories of surprising, social, and scarce. And these are not things that I made up. These, you know, literally came from talking to the best AI researchers and engineers in the world and asking them, you know, if you were telling your kids what to study, how to prepare for the workforce, what would you, you know, tell them to do? And, you know, they didn't say go to coding boot camp. They didn't say, you know, learn to be an AI engineer. They said things like teach them to be empathetic, to be kind, to listen to people, um, to share. All those sort of lessons that you, you know, you learn in kindergarten and then you never study again. Those actually turn out to be the things that are really hard for a robot to do as well as a human. So that's the kind of thing that we should all be making a bigger part of our lives and our work. Um, not just because it, it makes us harder to replace, but because it, it makes us more human. Well, the topic of AI is certainly on the minds of a lot of people, and I appreciate you coming on and explaining the way you look at it and the way you see how it's going and, and what could be coming in the future. I've been talking with Kevin Roos. He is a technology columnist for The New York Times. He's host of a podcast called The Rabbit Hole, and he is author of the book, Future Proof, Nine Rules for Humans in the Age of Automation. And you'll find a link to his book and to his podcast in the show notes. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Mike. Really been a pleasure. Well, here's some advice you may have never heard before, and that is to stay off the roads on tax day, which this year, 2023, is Tuesday, the 18th of April. According to research, and this was published a few years ago, but probably not a lot of reason to think it still isn't true, but it was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that there are more fatal car accidents on tax day than any other day in April. They looked at data over 30 years and found a 6% spike on tax day. That's 13 more fatal crashes than usual, about the same as Super Bowl Sunday. Some people attribute that spike to distracted taxpayers rushing and taking routes that are not part of their normal routine in order to get their taxes filed. The next most dangerous driving days, according to the study, are July 4th and Election Day. And that is something you should know. It's always nice and it's always helpful to hear what people think of this podcast. If you haven't, or, or if you haven't lately... Please leave a rating and or review of this podcast wherever you listen. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. 
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.